Today's passage comes from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one with one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Just a light topic for us today on a Sunday morning here. Welcome again to Holy Trinity. Um, as we pick up our series in the book of First Corinthians, and think about the church on fire, the idea that uh, God's spirit helps to animate us and to um, fuel us in our lives, but also the way that our culture can start conflagrations in the local church. That is, they can, there are things that are outside the church that can come into the church, which is what's happening here in the book of 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> I want you to begin by thinking this morning about how your own sense of autonomy affects your relationships with other people around you, your kind of sense of independence. How does it affect your relationships with roommates, with family, but also with God? There's a really important theological treatise that um, was produced in 1995 called Toy Story. And uh, Toy Story featured sort of this theme of... Um, the secret life of the toys. You know, these toys that are like limp and non-animated until the uh, adults leave the room, or the children, I should say, leave the room, and then all of a sudden they, they, they spring to life. And uh, of course, Woody is the star of Toy Story. There's that moment when he sits up and uh, says, okay, everybody, the coast is clear. And uh, Slinky Dog, I don't know, is that his name maybe? And Little Bo Peep come over, anyway. Anyway, the, I'm not gonna spoil it if you haven't seen it, okay? But if you're 30 years old, you were four when this came out. So it came out 25, 30 years ago, 26 years ago. Um, there's a way in which the movie is exploring the sense of loss, the sense of autonomy when Buzz falls out the window and they go try to save him. They're like cut off from, you know, Andy's home. I'm stretching it, aren't I, a little bit? But the theme does 
kind of explore what does it look like to live in a world in which you are cut off and autonomous. Um, it's not quite as sinister as, say, Frederick Nietzsche saying, God is dead and we have killed him. But it does explore these kinds of themes. And I raise it because there's a way in which our modern culture views ourselves as extremely autonomous. No one can really tell us what to do. We do what we want with our own time. We do what we want with our own bodies. Um, one author, Carl Truman, argues that we might now have the rise of the modern self, even the rise of the erotic. And there's this little statement I want you to hear that he says. He argues that we have the triumph of the erotic, which does not simply involve the expansion of the boundaries of acceptable sexual behavior or notions of modesty, but actually requires the abolition of such in their entirety. In other words, we're completely autonomous from any standards. We are liberated, so to speak. I raise all of this because we're picking up in a passage that really focuses on the sexualized urban culture of Corinth. And the Apostle Paul is here charging the people. And essentially, if, if I were to give it to you in one simple sentence, what he is saying is that in a sexualized urban culture, you are to remember that you belong to God. It's very simple, but that's the logic of this passage. It's the logic of sexual purity is remember who you belong to. Remember whose you are, so to speak. Or to put it in a more complicated way, remember that you belong not to yourself, but to a death-defeating resurrection promising soul joining temple creating price paying savior that was a lot um, i'm just going to show you three sections in the text one is what paul does first is he starts to deal with some of the confusion that is in corinth in verses 12 to 13 so he picks up some things that they're saying and then he addresses them and he basically defines ownership God's ownership of them. So that's the first little section there in verses 12 to 13. Then he starts to d drill deeper after he deals with some of the confusion and defines the ownership. He basically just then drills down a little bit deeper into this idea that if you are in Christ, you don't belong to yourself, you belong entirely to Christ, to Jesus. And then the third thing he does is he really challenges the church, verses 18 to 20, to flee sexual immorality. There's a really, very strong imperative there. But what I want you to notice as we walk through this is that Paul is not primarily engaging in a conversation about sexual ethics in the way that sometimes the church does, which is rooted in shame, but actually rooted in honor and what Christ has done for us. Will you bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for... Uh, summertime being less than one month away, really, and ask that you would uh, strengthen, strengthen all of us, Lord, who struggle with the idea of keeping our hearts and our minds fully given over to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
So the first thing that Paul does is he deals with some of the confusion that's in the culture today. And we'll put the scripture up on the screen there. And you'll see that um, the first verse there, verse 12, begins with some quotations. All things are lawful. Sorry, all things are, yeah, all things are lawful for me. And what Paul is doing in quoting that is he's picking up something that was happening in the Corinthian culture where there was a kind of libertarianism saying, hey, we can do whatever we want with our bodies. Anything is lawful for us. And he takes that, that piece of um, cultural philosophy and he addresses it with a couple of other thoughts. So he says, okay, all, they say all things are lawful for me. And he says, okay, but not all things are helpful. In other words, there are things that are lawful that maybe are not so helpful for you to do. Then he repeats it again. He says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I won't be mastered by anything. One, one quick way to just think about the, the moment of culture that you're in and, and how to evaluate to make moral choices is to just ask yourself three questions. One is, is it lawful? If it's unlawful, throw it out the window. Two is, is it helpful? There's a subcategory of things beneath uh, things that are lawful that are just not that helpful. And then the last category is, will I be dominated by it? I'm just going to pause for a moment in the presence of God and ask yourself those questions. Is there anything that you're dominated by right now? Is there anything unhelpful that you need to get rid of in your life? Just use those questions. Paul continues to go on to clear up some of the confusion here. One of the other things that they're saying is food is made for the stomach and the stomach is made for food. And what the Corinthians were doing at that time is basically saying, hey, our bodies are made entirely for sex or for sexual immorality in the same way that the food, that food is made for the stomach and the stomach is made for food. Paul just kind of sweeps that away. He's like, yeah, except that God is going to destroy both of them. And then here's the real issue and here's the principle that the Apostle Paul is putting forward which is this, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. That's pretty simple, but that's the main point of what the Apostle Paul is saying today is you don't belong to you. Everything about the American culture today tells us that we are independent, we can do whatever we want to. On the weekends, we are made to enjoy all of life. And Paul comes in and intervenes and says, true in one sense, but in another sense, you belong entirely to the Lord. You belong to Jesus. If you want some reasons for that, I'll just give you a couple real quick. One is he made you like you wouldn't exist if he hadn't made you. Two is he gave you breath today when you got out of bed. He gave you breath. You belong to him. You also belong to him because he bought you and that's what we'll see a little bit later. Here's what we sang a few minutes ago. How deep is the Father's love for us? How vast, beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. In other words, what the gospel teaches is that when we were walking away from him, he brought us back to him and said, not only do we belong to him, but we are his treasure. You are his treasure is what he's saying here. Our culture has spent the last 60 years or so arguing that in detail that we can do whatever we want with our bodies, arguing that your body is not 
is meant not just for sex, but what the Apostle Paul here calls sexual immorality. The word there for sexual immorality, and if you were here a few weeks ago, you heard us use it, is the word porneia, where we get our word pornography from. Um, and it's a kind of umbrella term that has to do with a number of kinds of sexual immorality. The Apostle Paul is saying, you weren't made for, in, in the vernacular, you weren't made for porn. You were made for the Lord. Is essentially what he is saying. Um, in other words, Jesus, Paul puts his hand up and says, no, you, you belong to a higher calling. You belong to a higher purpose. You belong to a higher entity. You belong to the Lord. Jesus redefines your identity so that it's not your desires that completely define you. Here's how the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. I'm not my own but I belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Hear that one more time. I'm not my own. But belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my Savior, Jesus Christ. That idea of mastery and domination, let's ask you if there's anyone here this morning who feels dominated by some area in your life that you just need to hear that Christ has purchased you from that today. So Paul in the first, first in verses 12 and 13 deals with confusion and he defines ownership. And what he does after that is he just kind of drills deeper down and starts to demonstrate the implications in verses 14 to 17. And as he, as he drills down, what he's actually doing is showing different aspects of God's ownership of us. I want to show you that very quickly. Here is what he says. He says, uh, verse 14 says, and God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his own power. In other words, to what degree does God own you? He owns you to the degree that after, you're, after you've gone into the ground, after your body is decaying, that there's a trumpet blowing and he's like, I'm coming back for that one. I'm going to go get that one because that one, the resurrection is the demonstration with new life that you belong entirely to Jesus. Your future belongs to Jesus. The entirety of who you are belongs to Jesus. Paul is really arguing kind of two things in this section here. One is that the resurrection is a demonstration that we belong to Jesus. But at the end, he also argues, at the end of this little section here, he argues for what you might call union. So you can think of it this way. He argues for ownership in the previous section. And then he talks about the resurrection and then about union. Here's what he says. He says that we are joined in our spirit to the Lord. We have spiritual union with the Lord. You see the quote there in verse 16. It says, the two shall become one flesh. And then what he says there now is that there's a spiritual union in which you are supernaturally already joined to the person of Christ. And so the logic goes like this. If God owns you, then he owns every part of you. He owns your eyes. He owns your heart. He owns your mind. He owns your, to be graphic, he owns your sexual organs. He, or, he owns your your desires as well. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. And so the logic says, if that's true, 
If we so deeply belong to God, and if he's going to raise us from the dead, if our spirits are united with them, him, then how in the world could we unite our bodies to a prostitute? There is, there is um, a uh, historian that says that in Corinth, at a certain period, there were around 10,000 prostitutes at one of the temples. That it was just a place. It was, it was sort of, some people say it's the Las Vegas of the ancient world. What, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, okay? No one needs to know what has happened in Corinth. And what was happening in the first century is there was just explicit sexual relations happening that were completely outside of the boundaries of marriage. What Paul is doing is not shaming them, but he's helping them to see the implications of uniting themselves in sexually immoral ways. The word there for prostitute um, is the same word that was used earlier in, in chapter five, but a feminine version of it. It's the word porne. Okay, so what I mentioned before, porne, yeah, this is, this is, the dictionary definition is just a woman who is using her body for financial gain. And the Apostle Paul is not criticizing that woman, he's criticizing those who are abusing and using women in that way. Biblical sexual ethics are not rooted in shame. They are rooted in a redemptive view of what God has done for us, that he owns us, that he's gonna raise us, that he has a spiritual union with us, that we have one spirit with the Lord. Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with them. Let me just say a word to those of you who are, are weary of porn, who are year, weary of being caught in that, in that area. Um, there have been men who have come to me and to other leaders in the church throughout the years who have just said, look, I want to admit to you that I am completely caught in this and I don't know how to get free from it. And we have seen many of those men um, cut free. As they op- One of the things we like to do with our sin is we like to cover it up. What the scriptures say, what James says is, uncover your sin to the Lord. And even James, confess your sin to the Lord and to others so that you might be healed. What happens when we open up our sin to the Lord is he covers it up. He says, let me take that away for you. So if you're someone who's weary of pornography or weary of being stuck in porn, then this word is for you. If you're weary of the one night stand, think of this, that one day Jesus is gonna raise you completely out of all of that, the resurrection. Gonna leave all that junk behind. Ever feel like you're prone to wander from God? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. After the service, we'll have some people uh, that will pray with you over there if you want to pray. Now you're like, yeah, if I go over there and pray, then everyone's going to think I'm struggling with pornography. So if you're having financial troubles today or if you had an argument with your roommate this morning and want someone to pray over there, that's on the right. On the left is, just kidding. (laughs) All right, Paul's drilling down into ownership. 
He's drilling down into the resurrection. He's drilling down into union. And now he just turns to a bald imperative. He starts challenging the church in verses 18 to 20. He just says, now he just says it, flee sexual immorality. That's it. Get out. Unlock the door. Run. Drive away. Block that person's number. Last night, got a text from an unknown person, you know. Are you fine? Or something like that. How are you? I said, I'm so fine. They text me back, there's a text, girl texts me back a picture like, do you remember me? My name is Emily. Now what do I do? What's my next move? What I did is I just, went, I, I blocked it. This is what Paul's saying. He's like, don't mess around. Don't play around. Get out. Remember Joseph with Potiphar's wife? Like, he's not messing around. I'm just, I don't care if they throw me in jail. Joseph gets thrown in jail for running away. Block the number. Delete the profile. Swipe, swipe left. Swipe right or swipe up. That was kind of corny, I know. But, but look up to the Lord. Why? Because it's personal. Every sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. You stole something, it's outside of you. You lied, it's outside of you. Cheated on something, it's outside of you. He's not ranking sins here, but he is saying there's a kind of social effect, a spiritual effect that sexual immorality has on us. And Jesus bought you for purity. Jesus is going to raise you in purity. Jesus has joined with you in purity. See, porneia is personal. It's physical. Or do you not know, there's two last little logic moves that Paul does here. So he does ownership, he does resurrection, he does union, then he does temple, then he does price. Okay? If you think of the temple... The temple was a place that the Israelites had to go to annually, sometimes quarterly for feasts. They had to slaughter animals there. And there was a joy to it, but there was also a burden to it. If you didn't live in Jerusalem, you had to travel there. And what Paul is saying now is that the death and resurrection of Jesus doesn't just mean you're going to be raised from the dead. It doesn't just mean you're joined to Christ. It means that you're a temple now. It's like people say today, like, don't just go to church, be the church, because you are the church, right? Don't just come to the temple, so to speak. Be the temple. In other words, meditate on the idea that the Holy Spirit has come to you, sealed you, dwells in you, and delights in you. Flee from sexual immorality, he says, but then he says, your body is a temple. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? You are not your own for you're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You have become, and we have become together, a holy place of communion with God. In other words, 
the, the way out of fleeing immorality isn't always just the exertion of the will. It is the remembrance of what he's done for us. It's the remembrance of who you are. This is like meditation. No, 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 no. I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. In a few minutes, we're going to sing this. God himself comes down to live and makes the sinner's heart his throne. Oh, praise the one true king. Every crown we lay at his feet, praise him. Praise him. Paul does say to flee immorality, but he bathes the commandments in the logic of God's presence with us and his love for us. What difference would it make if you really felt like the Holy Spirit dwelt within you? If you could say, my heart is yours, my life is yours, my body is yours, dwell within me. Second rationale here in this third section for fleeing sexuality is related. His, the statement doesn't go into the imagery of being bought by the Spirit, sorry, of being filled with the Spirit, but being bought with a price. Here's the logic that is deepened because you belong to Christ. Because on a tree 2,000 years ago, part of what he was doing was purchasing you and liberating you from slavery to sin. And he bought you with his blood to be his very own. You know, there's this tendency in culture today to think, okay, well, he bought me dinner and he bought me a movie, so I owe him something. Yeah, except Jesus bought you with his blood. You don't owe that person anything. You owe Christ everything. Yeah, it's great that you bought her a drink. Okay, you bought her a drink, and Jesus bought her body for himself. That's the logic here. You've been bought with a price, so don't forget the price that was paid 2,000 years ago. Again, this is not intended to shame. It's intended to, to build up, to honor if you've been filled by the Spirit and bought by the Son, then glorify God in your body. So delete the app or break off the relationship or confess to someone. Go back and reread Proverbs again. Proverbs 6.27. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and not get burned? You're going to get burned if you play with fire. Or at the end of chapter 5, it's like, the, the, the author of Proverbs is looking at somebody who has not repented and saying, you're giving away all of your strength, all of your honor. At the end of your life, you'll groan and your flesh will be consumed. How I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. Let me just say a couple words to those who have wrestled with pornetia, not just porn, but sexual immorality over and over and over again. Jesus isn't done with you. The price that he paid for you, paid for your past, pays for the present, pays for the future. He's not done. His mercy is greater than your infidelity. And he's not tired. He's praying for you right now. Some years of 
I just want, I want to say you can be set free. Some years ago, a friend of mine called me, and uh, this is a person with children. He said, hey, can I have lunch with you and Amy? So he said, sure. Comes over to our house, and he says, I just want to confess something to you. And I'm going around to people that I know and confessing to them. And he said, I've been so caught in pornography that I got to the point where I was about to do some live chats with prostitutes. And I started putting my credit card, typing my credit card into the machine. And I just thought, what am I doing? He's a guy just came over to my house and he's like, I just want to tell you so that I, why? So that he can be set free. That's maybe 12 years ago. But God has worked in that person's life. He realized that his body was God's temple and he realized that he'd been bought with a price and he stopped and he confessed. God wants your body to be a place of spiritual worship. He bought you for that. He paid the price so you'd belong to him and not to some guy or some girl. John Owen put it this way. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Let me just close with a, a few applications. Number one is question the culture around you. That's what Paul does. He doesn't take what culture says and just go, okay, that sounds good. And he's like, no, you say this, but let me flip that and show you this. Question the culture around you. Two, remember what Christ has done for you, but don't just remember, meditate. You belong to him. He's going to raise you up. Your spirit is united to him. He's made you his temple, a place of worship, and he bought you with a price. All that in just a few verses are what he has done with you. Ownership, resurrection, union, temple, price. First Corinthians really is a meditation on the cross. And so I want you to also Remember the suffering of, of God at the hands of humankind. Here's how Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it. The real study of Theologia Sacra, that is sacred theology, begins when in the midst of questioning and seeking, human beings encounter the cross. When they recognize the end point of all their passions in the suffering of God at the hands of humanity and realize their entire vitality stands under judgment. That's when you really know who God is. Is when you come to the cross and you realize that he did that, he paid that price for you. So spend your time there. And I'm going to close with uh, where I began, which is Toy Story, uh, with one kind of enduring image from, there's this kind of touching moment, or this is the image that I have in Toy Story. That one moment when he gets jealous of Buzz and Buzz turns over his boot and on the bottom of Buzz's boot it says Andy, which is, I think, Andy Davis, the kid who owns him, so to speak. And uh, Woody is kind of jealous and he looks at the bottom of his, his boot and it says Andy and one of the ends is like inverted as a way of saying, you know, it seems like um, Andy's kind of moving on. Like he's older now, he can write his name. Anyway, the enduring image there for me is that 
just would he belong to somebody? And to know he belonged to somebody, all he had to do was just turn over his boot and look down and go, he mattered because he belonged to someone. And emblazoned on your soul, Christ has said, mine. This one belongs to me. So the others in the world may do what they want to do, but this one belongs to me. In a sexualized urban culture, you belong to a death-defeating, resurrection-certain, spirit-uniting, temple-creating, price-paying Savior. So may you live for him in this culture. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for our Savior Jesus. We didn't deserve anything. We did not deserve his grace to buy us, to unite us, to raise us, to own us, to cleanse us. I pray for my brothers and sisters here who feel caught, who have tried over and over again and been defeated. Let them know your mercy and love washing over them once again that Christ has paid it all for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.